Hello, Words Matter listeners. To celebrate the relaunch of the show, we are offering membership in the DSR network for just $5 a month or a bargain at $50 per year. Membership gets you access to bonus content, ad-free listening, not just on Words Matter, but other great shows like Deep State Radio, which I'm also on from time to time, the DSR Daily Brief, Next in Foreign Policy, and more. To take advantage of this offer, all you have to do is go to the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. That's the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. Thank you and hope to see you on our member site. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. Well, these are big things that matter a lot. And Dr. Kavita Patel. So it's a pretty incredible chunk of change. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing or not doing or saying about them. Today, we are honored to be joined by our first inaugural guest. I can't be more excited because we have always, Norm, you you and I have been speaking for weeks now about the Inflation Reduction Act and did a previous pod on just trying to break it down so that people kind of who might think that the title is reflective of what's in there are surprised to learn how much is in there. And we couldn't be pleased to have one of your colleagues, someone I look up to and do a lot of reading when he puts out scholarly work is uh, Dr. Michael Strain. He is the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy and Director of Economic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. The longer people don't know this, the longer your name is at think tanks, the more important you are. So we can go ahead and just assume he's got it all down. But Michael, before his time at AEI and a lot of his current roles has been in the heart of many of the places that have developed what I think is the foundation for the IRA. And that includes being an assistant economist at the Federal Reserve, an economist at the U.S. Census Bureau, as well as an administrator at the Census Data Research Center. So Michael has been there and done it all, not just uh, writing about it. So we couldn't be more thrilled. Norm, take it away. We are in the week of Labor Day. So it is the perfect time to talk about work and the workforce and where we are. And I'll start with this, Michael. We know we've seen quite remarkable job growth over the last several months actually defying what a lot of economists and others expected. They thought that we would see a slowing economy and very poor job numbers. And we know that the official unemployment rate is staggeringly low. I'd like you to unpack some of that for us. What can we say about the nature of those job numbers? We know that the low unemployment rate and the fact that We have a whole lot more employers looking for employees than we necessarily have workers looking for jobs. But that doesn't mean that everybody is out there trying to get into the workforce. We also know that we have a lot of people who've decided they don't need to go back to work. If you could just elucidate us and unpack a little bit what these numbers mean, and then we can talk some more about what it means for the future and what these current policies that we're seeing, including the Inflation Reduction Act, imply. Thank you for having me. I didn't know I was the inaugural guest until uh, until a few moments ago. So that's uh, that, that that makes this uh, even more special for me. And of course, I've, I've admired both of you and uh, for, for years and, and obviously 
Norm have really benefited from having you as a as a colleague here at AEI. The labor market situation can be can be summarized pretty easily. We have a very 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 strong job market. We have a job market in which employers are chasing workers rather than workers chasing employers. And that shows up in all sorts of of statistics. We have fully recovered all of the employment losses from the pandemic and from the lockdowns. Uh, And so we're, you know, if you kind of look at the total number of payroll jobs that there were in February of 2020, the month before COVID really started to clobber the economy, we are now back above that number of payroll jobs. And so that's an extremely rapid labor market recovery. Norm, as you mentioned, the unemployment rate is below 4%, extremely low unemployment rate. What's really staggering are the number of job vacancies. There have been months where we've had 12, 13 million job vacancies. Currently, we have about 10 and a half million job vacancies. These are record high numbers of job vacancies. Employers are just desperate to find workers. You know, you often hear employers complain about being able to find workers and you often hear about, you know, labor shortages. The kind of right knee-jerk reaction to that is to dismiss it as complaining. But that's not the case this time. You're seeing businesses complain about labor shortages, but they're also putting their money where their mouths are. Before the pandemic, average wages were growing at around a 3% annual rate. Now, average wages are growing at above a 5% annual rate, which is a huge increase in wages. You're seeing a reduction in wage inequality. If you look at continuing workers, workers at the bottom, the bottom 20% of workers are seeing their wages grow at a rate above 7%. Continuing workers at the top are seeing their wages grow at a rate of about half of that. So not only are wages growing really rapidly on average, but actually wages are growing faster at the bottom than they are at the top. So wage inequality is shrinking. Why are wages growing so fast? Because businesses are so desperate for workers that they're competing harder than ever to attract new workers. They're competing harder than ever to retain existing workers. And one of the margins along which they compete is by offering higher wages. You're also seeing traditionally vulnerable workers getting jobs at higher rates than they normally do. And so we have a, a very, very strong labor market in, in many ways too strong. I mean, this is a real challenge for the Fed. You know, the Fed needs to cool the labor market down in order to get inflation under control. But people who are arguing that we're in a recession or concerned that, that we, we may be in a recession you know, I think I think the labor market settles that question. In the first half of 2022, we were not in a recession. I saw that in one of your recent op-eds, you actually kind of allude to this. Am I a prime age woman? I'm not sure. But I think uh, you talk about this period of time and how prime age women have been increasing their participation in the workforce, noting that before the turn of the century, it was 77.3%. And then fell back to 76.4. But it's it's a incredible, kind of to your point about a decrease in the disparity in payment. But then is there something about, you allude to this, that it's not just COVID and not just some of these more, I would call recent dynamics, that there were these pressures prior to the pandemic. And you've certainly worked through many of those. 
and that those are likely playing out. So it's, it's kind of both. So if we talk about these being headwinds for job growth or for labor growth in some fashion, what should we be looking for? So when jobs reports come out, I'm not the labor economist. I saw in the last jobs report, Michael, I thought it was actually good healthcare, my sector that saw some of the greatest growth in jobs, because that had been a place where we had not repleted those losses. Tell us how you look at jobs reports and kind of think about them, what we should be looking for in future job reports if some of our incentives are working or alternatively not working. You are definitely in your I'm in, in my prime. prime. All right, good. Um, when, Notice he didn't say if Norm was in his prime. That's okay. That's all right. Norm is also <laughs> Norm is also in his prime. Norm is way past prime. Norm is operating at a very very high level. When economists refer to quote unquote prime age workers, this is a way to kind of look at the state of the labor market over long periods of time, adjusting for the fact that the demographics of the of the population change over time. And so when you're trying to look at trends in labor force participation over a you know, 50 or 60 or 70 year period, one issue in interpreting them is that the population is just much older than it used to be. The share of the population over the age of 65 is a lot higher today than it was decades ago. And so economists will look at workers, will look at people, excuse me, between the ages of 25 and 54 with the thought that generally speaking, 25-year-olds are not still in school. You know, another important change in the labor market is that people go to school for longer. So if you're 25 years old, you know, generally speaking, you're not in school. If you're 54 years old, you know, generally speaking, you're too young to be retired. There are still a good number of 23-year-olds who are in school. There are still a good number of 56-year-olds who are retired. And so, you know, you kind of look at 25 to 54 and try and look at what's happening to the rate at which people in that age range are participating in the workforce. And what you described is exactly right. What you see is that, you know, following the Second World War, big increases in the share of people in that age range that are participating in the workforce. What's happening under the under the hood is that the rate at which men are participating is going down, but the rate at which women are participating is going up. And women's increases are occurring at a faster rate than men's decreases. So the overall rate is going up. That kind of stalled out about 20 years ago and then went into a decline. Fortunately, the, the, the really excellent labor market that we had in the years prior to the pandemic saw that decline uh, start to partially reverse. And so, and so the participation rate among people of that age started, started going up. It was then clobbered during the pandemic, the early months of the pandemic and the lockdowns like everything else. Uh, it hasn't fully recovered, but it is, it is tantalizingly close to, uh, to, to full recovery. It's, it is two-tenths of a percentage point away from, from full recovery. So, so we you know, certainly, I would expect for, for it, to, for it to, to fully recover, but it hasn't. And that surprised me because if you look at a lot of other indicators that we talked about earlier, the number of jobs in the economy, the unemployment rate, you do see full recoveries. And I would have expected, you know, maybe there are some people who were 62 years old in March of 2020 and they've, you know, then they spent age 62 to 64 in the first two years of the pandemic. And, you know, they're just like, I'm just not doing this anymore. You know, I'm, I'm close enough to retirement age. So, I wouldn't expect 
a full recovery of the overall participation rate. But I, I, I would expect a recovery of the of the prime age participation rate, and I would expect for that rate to to actually exceed. It's uh, you know I would hope it would resume its upward trend given how hot the labor market is, and that hasn't happened, and and so that is a concern. And my concern is that whatever kind of constellation of factors have been pushing that rate down over the last several decades are more powerful than the high wages that are currently being offered, the kind of tight labor market conditions, the fact that employers are chasing workers. And if that's the case, then you know that should be ringing alarm bells for policymakers. It should be ringing alarm bells for businesses because there are a whole host of reasons why it's just really, really important for the economy, for society, for individuals, for uh, workforce participation to, to be trending up and, and not down among that age group. So what will you look for next? The thing that I look for right now, first in the jobs report, are the data on, on wage growth. And I'm looking at the data on wage growth because I'm really concerned about inflation. And if I start to see wage growth cool off, then I'm feeling better about about inflation. I'm feeling better about the odds of a really bad recession. I feel like the Fed's job is a little bit easier rather, rather than a little bit harder. And that I think is 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 the thing the thing to look at, the thing that I look at first at least. You know, the second thing I look at are some of these other cyclical measures. The unemployment rate going up or down. The unemployment rate went up. That was good. The unemployment rate went up because a bunch of people entered the workforce and not all of them immediately had a job. And so that was a situation where it was actually good news that the unemployment rate went up. And then, you know, when I'm kind of looking at these, you know, so I'm interested in these short-term issues. I'm interested in, in the implications for monetary policy and the Fed, but I'm also interested, as we just talked about, in some of these longer-term trends. And that's when I look at the participation rate and, and, and things of that nature because those longer term trends were problems before the pandemic. They were problems for many, many years, and there'll be challenges after this current, this current uh, economic period is behind us. Michael, I want to unpack things a little bit more. You said that there are 10 million or so jobs out there that have not been filled. How many of those jobs are service jobs? I mean, you can't drive down any street uh, that I have seen without having uh, the fast food places and the restaurants and hotels and motels all have signs out saying we need workers and often $16, $17 an hour, which is striking for these kinds of jobs. How many of them are these kinds of jobs? How many are higher end jobs, white collar jobs or others that you know, require significantly more experience or education. You're seeing a lot of these jobs across the board, and you are seeing, I think, a disproportionate number in in some of the lower wage sectors that you that you talked about. You know, just to just to kind of look at at what we saw, for example, last month, there are a huge number of job openings in the healthcare sector. About fifteen percent of the job openings that we had last month were in the leisure and hospitality sector. So the kinds of restaurant jobs that you're talking about, that's a, that's, that's a big share. About 13% were in accommodation and, and, and food services, big share. You see a big share in retail, about 10% were in retail. 
And so there's there's a you know the the kind of anecdotal experience of you know looking at the help wanted signs, I think actually does give you a pretty good insight into what's happening at the economy as a whole. There are two things happening. One is that we just have a a lot of consumer demand right now, and that's driving hiring. So people have a lot of money in their pocket from various government stimulus measures, and they want to go to restaurants, they want to go buy stuff at, at, at the store. And so you're seeing, you know, restaurants needing to staff up, you're seeing stores needing to staff up. Those are also sectors that lost a lot of jobs in the pandemic. So some of that is, is, is just trying to kind of get back, get back to where they were. And so, you know, that kind of cyclical demand component is driving a lot of the job openings. The second thing that's happening is that the economy is, is different than it was prior to the pandemic as a consequence of the pandemic. So if you look, for example, at employment in childcare centers, it's still way down. If you look at employment in the museum industry, it's still way down. If you look at employment in in performing arts venues, it's still way down. Employment in those sectors is down 10, 20% relative to where it was in February of 2020. If instead you look at employment among couriers, it's way up. If you look at employment among warehouse workers, it's way up. Employment for those industries is 20, 30% higher than it was in February of 2020. And, and so, you know, this just reflects the fact that people are, people are, 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 are doing things a little differently than they used to. You know, I'm going to, the movies way less. I mean, I haven't been to a movie theater. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm not nervous about, about COVID. I'm, I have a full travel schedule again, and my kids are in school and I go to mass every Sunday and I, you know, eat out in restaurants way more often than I should. But just for whatever reason, like I'm not going back to the movies. I'm not going back to concerts. Maybe I never will go back at the same rate as I, as I used to. We buy a lot more on Amazon than we used to. <laughs> and we get a lot more stuff delivered to our home that, that we used to, you know, would have gone to the store to purchase. We may never go back. 20 years from now, we might still be doing our shopping that way. And so, you know, if millions of people are doing things just a little bit differently, then that adds up throughout the economy. And you, and you kind of get a situation where employment is still way down at museums and employment is still way down at concert venues, but employment is way up in warehouses, employment is way up for couriers. And so you see a lot of job vacancies in the sectors that are expanding as well. So part of it is just, again, you know, the first part of it is people have more money, they want to go buy stuff, restaurants need to accommodate that, retailers need to accommodate that. And then a second component of it is that the economy itself is changing in ways that could significantly outlast the pandemic and that that is leading to to job job vacancies as well. We've seen these reports in the last week or 10 days quite extraordinary of companies making huge investments in manufacturing in the US. Battery plants, uh, chip plants, the Chips Act obviously a significant part of this. Do you attribute this to a considerable degree in federal government policies? Is it things like the CHIPS Act? Is it this, from the Inflation Reduction Act, this and, and others, including state actions, move to fully electrify the automobile industry? 
over the next decade or decade and a half? Or are there other things going on? And what are the implications for manufacturing in the U.S. looking down the road? I credit a lot of this to public policy changes. I think the CHIPS Act is responsible for a lot of it. I think the Inflation Reduction Act will be responsible for um, growth in the domestic alternative energy development space. This is, of course, set against a backdrop of, of, of market activity. And so we, I think businesses are increasingly wary of having their supply chains run through China. And so what we've seen over the past few years is a reduction in the share of manufacturing imports to the United States from China. We haven't seen that activity relocate to the United States. Instead, we've seen that activity relocate to other nations in Southeast Asia. So Vietnam, for example, has been, has been a big beneficiary of that. We'll probably see an increase in some of that activity being located in Mexico, maybe some in, in Latin America. But the economics didn't make sense to move a lot of that activity back to the United States until the CHIPS Act um, and, and I think the, the Inflation Reduction Act will have, will have an impact on that as well. I expect the impact of these bills to be marginal with respect to manufacturing. So certainly, uh, Norma, you, you see those headlines and you know Senator Portman's real happy about the fab being built in Ohio and, and is talking about that. And those are significant. And I think the CHIPS Act is a consequential law. But I think market forces will swamp the, the effect of the CHIPS Act. And so you, you, you will see some things like that happening in targeted industries. But, but I think the, the kind of trend out of China into Vietnam is going to be a bigger story than uh, shifts out of China and into Ohio or Michigan. I want to thank Michael Strain for joining us. And it'd be incredible helpful as we're launching this show. If you can rate, review, subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player, share this with some of your friends on social media. If you like this and want to get more out of it, become a member of the DSR network and actually get the bonus segment where we're going to give Michael a little bit of, hey, what's happening with these three questions around the economy? Words Matter is a production of the DSR network. The executive producer of the DSR network is Chris Cutmore and our producer is the great Grant Haver. The next episode will be in your podcast feeds on September 16th. See you then.